Our scripture reading this morning is from the New Testament book of Acts. We turn to Acts chapter 9. Reading from the Word of God, Acts chapter 9, beginning at verse 32, and reading through verse 43, the end of the chapter. Hear now the word of the Lord, Acts 9, beginning at verse 32. Now as Peter went here and there among them, among them all, he came down to the saints who lived at Lydda. And there he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. This truly is the word of the Lord. Your congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Jesus told his followers before he ascended that the Holy Spirit would come upon them that they would receive power when that spirit was given, and that they would then become witnesses. And the beginning of that witness is Jerusalem and Judea, then it extends to Samaria and reaches the ends of the earth, so that when we come to the end of the book of Acts, we have the Apostle Paul in the great city of Rome. And the witness of that kingdom is the witness that Jesus already announced in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the Gospel. And wherever these witnesses go in the book of Acts, there accompanies their presence, and there accompanies their word, the great powerful miracles of the Holy Spirit. Thus, confirming the apostolic word, but also bringing people to life as the power of the gospel and the power of the kingdom of God begins to undo the horrible damage that sin has brought into this world. Death is an enemy. Death brings misery. And as we read in this passage, uh, the death of Dorcas, Tabitha, brings great grief to all those who had been blessed by her work and ministry. In in this book of Acts, after Stephen is martyred, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem. The leader in that persecution, among others, but one of the great leaders is Saul of Tarsus. The word of God begins to spread among the Samaritans, 
through the ministry of Philip the deacon and then the apostles Peter and, and John, Saul of Tarsus in Acts 9 journeys to Damascus because there he has, he has with him letters that authorize him to arrest Christians, drag them back to Jerusalem. His uh, hatred against Christ and his church is still manifested until... Once again, in an act of sovereign grace and power, Jesus Christ stops him dead in his tracks and arrests Peter, uh, arrests Paul, Saul of Tarsus, and turns him around. In Acts 9, verse 6, Jesus tells him, Saul, to rise and enter the city to wait his marching orders for the kingdom. Now, on this Sunday which some people call Labor Sunday in connection with the holiday in North America, you must hear that same command to all who work for the King, the Lord Jesus, to rise. And so I want us to focus this morning upon Acts 9, the verses 32 through 43, under the theme, Jesus commands his workers to arise. First, notice the power of that command. Second, notice those who are the objects of this command, and thirdly, the need that still goes on this day to hear this command. This command is demonstrated in the miracles that we have read here in Acts 9. Now, again, to go back to the context, the story has switched from Saul of Tarsus, who becomes Paul the Apostle, it switches from him to Peter, after Saul's conversion to Christianity, a period of peace and a lessening of persecution now allows the church to grow in this period of peace under the blessing of the Holy Spirit. Peter goes out to visit the various saints, church members in various communities. He comes to Lydda, and there he finds a man who is paralyzed uh, named Aeneas. Now, the text tells us that Aeneas probably a Christian, though that's not explicit, but most likely a Christian since Peter is visiting the saints. He's been bedridden for eight years. I once knew a lady in the Midwest who was bedridden for 35 years. And yet if you ever met her, you would find that her Christian expression was just as new and joyful and as vibrant as any new believer. Now, I'm not saying she never had any down moments or sad moments, but even being bedridden for 35 years, she still had a a vibrant Christian spirit. You know, sometimes we put such a high premium on physical activity, maybe too high a premium, that those who are restricted to beds of paralysis or, or for whatever reason Uh, really don't have much use within the kingdom of God. But even people bedridden can carry on a ministry of prayer, of encouragement, a ministry of uh, being fruitful for the kingdom of God. But Peter finds Aeneas bedridden. Was Aeneas ministering? Was he being useless in the kingdom of God? Well, again, the text doesn't really tell us Is he not bringing joy to anyone else? Whatever the the case in Aeneas' personal life, 
The kingdom of God has come. Not yet in its fullness, but it has come. And therefore, Peter calls upon Aeneas to rise. The power of the kingdom of God is demonstrated in this miracle. And again, brothers and sisters, whenever you come across miracles, large or small, those are meant to get our attention. For the miracles that occur in the kingdom of God are not Christian magic acts. You know, if you ever see some magician uh, distract you through his performance, we are meant to do ooh and ah and wonder, well, how did he do that? But miracles in the Bible, miracles in the kingdom of God are messages, maybe without audible words, but they're messages that say the kingdom of God is real and its power is real, and this is what God's kingdom brings. Aeneas immediately stands up to make his bed, and notice the reaction when people see the message of the miracle. Many turn to the Lord. About 10 miles away, there's the seaport of Joppa. There were Christians in Joppa. One was a woman named Tabitha. Now her Greek name is Dorcas, and both words uh, mean gazelle. Uh, one wonders, did her parents name her this gazelle because she had beautiful, bright eyes? I don't know. She was a remarkable woman, not because of the schooling she had received. That's not mentioned. We are not told that she was incredibly intelligent. No, we don't know. It doesn't tell us that she's related to very important people, that she was a sister or a cousin to some uh, governor, Jewish governor in the area. No, what does Luke record? It says in verse 36 that she was full of good works and acts of charity. And again, in the context, these are acts of charity from which widows benefited. And maybe Dorcas or Tabitha was a widow herself. In that culture, widows did not receive checks from the government. They often were the most vulnerable members of society, and if there was no supporting family network, they could be very, very poor, and therefore very, very destitute. They were the neediest in the ancient world. But what does Dorcas do? It says that she filled her days, filled with the sweet Spirit of Jesus Christ. She helps the needy by sewing inner garments and outer garments for them. She surrendered her humble life to the Lord Jesus Christ, and she gave herself to others in Joppa in his devoted service. But then it happens that she dies. Now, we all must die. It happens that she dies as well. The body was washed in preparation according to Jewish burial custom. But news gets around. Not that far away, 10 miles away, and Lydda is the apostle Peter. So a delegation of two men go to Lydda to say, Peter, please come at once. Please arise and, and come with us. And Peter does. And when he comes to this upper room, he's met by a large group of mourners, many widows themselves, who show him the garments that Dorcas, Tabitha, had made for them while she was still alive. It was sad. This is sad. Dorcas, this lovely person who sewed 
garments for the poor is gone. She is dead. No more good works from her. No more acts of kindness. No more warm smiles and loving encouragement that would have come from this particular saint. Peter dismisses the group. In fact, what happens now reminds us of what Jesus did when he comes to the death scene of the daughter of Jairus. He dismisses the crowd, sends them out. He kneels and he prays and he commands the woman to rise. Tabitha, get up. Dorcas, arise. She opens her eyes. She sees Peter. She stands up. Again, in an echo of the Aeneas healing, the news of this spreads around, and people become aware of a great miracle. Not a magic act, but a miracle, the message of which is this. Jesus is alive and well, and the power of his Holy Spirit is at work, not only in the messages that the church brings, but also in these acts that tell us that the message is credible and that the kingdom of God is real and that when it comes into this world, it brings healing. Also, resurrection. Verse 40, 42 says, Many believed in the Lord Jesus. Now, these are nice stories, aren't they? But again, the Bible never gives us nice stories. It's telling a story, indeed, but they're not nice, entertaining stories. They are confronting you and me with the reality of God's blessed kingdom in the Lord Jesus Christ. What's going on here? Aeneas is raised from a bed of paralysis, and Dorcas is raised from the dead. These are miracles. These are signs of the life-giving power of God in Jesus Christ. They are telling us and reminding us that Jesus is the life, the truth, and the way They are true signs that he is the only living way. The power that raised these two people up was the Spirit's power. The same power that raised Jesus' body when he was placed in the tomb after his crucifixion. The Spirit's power is resurrection power that gives you the life, the joy, the opportunity to serve and to offer ourselves in dedication to the kingdom of God. Because in the kingdom of God, there is life, for there is the spirit of Jesus. Outside of that kingdom, there's only death, decay, and hell. Aeneas is healed, and Dorcas is raised from the dead at the command of Jesus, uttered by the apostle Peter. Of course, For Jesus has the keys of life and death, of heaven and of hell. He can speak the word and people are healed. And when they are healed, they are now enabled to answer the calling that we have. For what is the chief end of man? You all know it is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The chief end of man is, to get, is not to get your soul into heaven. 
Of course, that's an important element. But that's an important element within the bigger picture of we are created to glorify God. But take a closer look at who are the objects of Jesus' commands. This brings us to our second point, brothers and sisters. Not just was the power of God displayed, but it was the life-giving power for whom? For these, what should we say, the small workers in God's kingdom. A man of Lydda named Aeneas. Did you ever hear of him before? Will you hear of him later in the Bible? A seamstress by the name of Tabitha, Dorcas. She's never, ever mentioned again in the Bible after this incident when she's raised from the dead. She's never mentioned again. Now, there are other Christians dying at this moment. Martyrdom has already begun. We think of Stephen, that most eloquent deacon, whose sermon is recorded for us in Acts 7. Now, there, there's a fine preacher. He got the entire Sanhedrin agitated against him, and they, they killed him. Is he raised from the dead? Not in the story told in Acts. He was stoned to death as the first martyr after Christ's ascension, but he is not raised from the dead. Not Stephen, the eloquent deacon, but Dorcas, the seamstress of all people. And we have to ask ourselves, why? Why her? Simply because she was a worker in God's kingdom, beloved of God, elect before the foundation of the world, one of God's little people who make up the rank and file of Jesus Christ's worker force. You know, it's said by one uh, commentator, he points out correctly that the ministry of Dorcas in her ministry to the poor was the Holy Spirit's ministry. Yes, the Holy Spirit is interested in Christian workers who sow, sow clothes for the poor. Death had interrupted that ministry, and death is a cold enemy. We hate it, and it will be defeated. And therefore, Peter came to bring the healing power of Jesus' spirit so that her ministry might continue, that it might go on again. And what lesson do we learn from this? That we should go to cemeteries and command the dead to rise? I think not. That we should all become people who sew clothes for the poor? That's wonderful work. But that's hardly the message. It's not go and do the likewise. By raising Dorcas from the dead and Aeneas from a bed of paralysis, our Lord Jesus Christ is declaring that all Christian work and all Christian workers are His, that they are holy, good, necessary. Beautiful. And that is good news. That is genuinely good news. Every labor and all his laborers are under his sovereign command. Arise from the dead to your tasks, says the Lord Jesus. This is good news. A wonderful command that comes from him who conquered death so that we might 
be justified, that we might begin to live a life of righteousness, but also live in the great and sure hope of our own glorious resurrection someday. You see, the need for this perspective on work with Jesus' command for his people to arise is never more needed than it is today. People live according to perspectives. They live according to words. They live according to narratives. What's your story? And so often Christian workers are often themselves sick in spirit, paralyzed and demoralized. They go to work, but they're dead inside. I had the privilege, and I call it a privilege, of working in a factory. I was a blue-collar worker for one full year after college. And I had been planning to go to seminary. I really was. And when I made it known in my last year of college that I am thinking of taking a year off and work to work, earn money for seminary, books, whatever, I was told again and again and again, don't do that. You'll never go back to school. Working on an assembly line, I listened to workers wish for coffee break. Then they wished for the noon lunch break. Then they wished for the end of the day. They wished for the weekend. They wished for their vacation. Or as my uncle say, they're wishing their life away. Now, making windows is not exactly the most glorious work in the eyes of the world. But it, too, is a place where Christian perspective is needed. Where does the Bible mention windows? Well... That's not the point. That's not the point. And when the world takes note that you go to church on Sunday, you sing uh, lovely hymns of Jesus, his cross and his resurrection, and then you come to work and you think exactly like the world. What benefit does being a Christian have? When I was a student in South Africa, there was a a Brazilian uh, woman student also studying there, and she says, you know, you North Americans, you came to Brazil with your missionaries, you taught us to love Jesus, to repent of our sins, don't smoke, don't drink, and that's the message. You told us nothing about the lordship of Christ in the rest of life. And so when we are confronted with contrary messages, we have nothing to say. How do you speak truth to power? You just tell them to stop drinking and stop smoking? That's a message? I know that there are things in our economy that are not always so pleasing. I understand that. I didn't get the job I wanted after college right away. The economy was tanking at the moment. And these factors can make us cynical unless we listen closely to the words of Acts 9 and hear Jesus' command, arise, arise. Otherwise, we will remain Christians who work and not Christian workers. There is a difference. And that is dangerous because then other voices, other narratives, other perspectives will then enter into the vacuum left by Christians, and then they will call the shots. Let me illustrate that from history. In the year 1848, there was great turbulence in parts of Europe. 
There were revolutions in France, Germany, and Hungary, 1848. And in the city of Brussels, Belgium, in a library, there was a German social theorist who was writing literature. Yes, brothers and sisters, ideas grow legs, and then they walk into history. And this German social theorist completed a very short booklet with these words. The communists disdain to conceal their views and aims. They openly declare that their ends can be attained only by a forcible overthrow of all existing social conditions. Let the ruling classes tremble at a communist revolution. The proletarians have nothing to lose but their chains. They have a world to win. Working men of all countries, unite. Many of you recognize these words as the words of Karl Marx and his ideas at one point in history, recent history, controlled one-third of planet Earth. Nothing to lose but their chains? Mention that in North Korea. A world to win, working men unite. You see, the issues that some, not all, but some working people face are tough. Poor job conditions. Union bosses that throw their weight around like tyrants. Management boss that underpay their workers and are deaf to the concerns of their workers, blind to the situations that they face. Low wages and dead-end jobs. I understand that. These things exist. Most work comes to be viewed then as routine drudgery. But brothers and sisters, we cannot allow that to call the shots in our thinking. The kingdom of God has arrived. The time is fulfilled. Repent and believe the gospel. God made us to be workers, not workaholics. Your job is not your God. But to work is built into us so that when we are robbed of that, we often become lost. But why do you work? Ah, what is the motivation? What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We know that. One Christian writer put it this way, that there are two reasons why people work. You can work for needs, or you can work according to your calling, your vocation. And by calling, he means the calling from God. And he writes this, the difference between motivation by needs and that of vocation, calling, is that in the former, working for needs, man chooses himself as the final goal of life. Whoa. But in the latter, working because of calling, man renounces his own person in everything and is aware of his relation, of his responsibility to God. I can make windows for the glory of God. Oh yeah, they give me a check at the end of the week. But I work to glorify God through the making of windows. Life, working life, is from God. And while you have it, it's given in sacrifice to God as your reasonable service. The purpose of life is to bring glory to him by bearing lasting fruits for Christ. 
Christian life issues into thankful sacrifice. Now let no one conclude from what I'm saying that this demands that one must become a minister, a missionary, or a Christian school teacher as if those alone are the full-time Christian jobs. No. The call of Jesus Christ is for all of you to become obedient to his will, to arise and serve him where he places you, wherever that may be, as a truck driver, as a homemaker, wife and mother, as an electrician, a mechanic, a pilot, and a seamstress. Yes, in the kingdom of God, even those who so close are, are worthy and will be raised from the dead. The world mourns when Christians evaporate and withdraw their witness from the, from the public square, so to speak. The world needs to see your joy and labor, to see your sense of calling, to perceive that you are citizens of a kingdom that's quite different than any kingdom we've ever seen in this world. Yeah, we are citizens of a kingdom that transcends all the nations of the world, a heavenly commonwealth. And from there, we await the arrival of our Savior, who will make our lowly bodies like his own glorious body, Acts 9 demonstrates the gospel of life coming to little people who work in lowly positions, and it says that they are valuable in the service of the kingdom. Arise. You have a world to win. But we can't do it by ourselves. We go in the power of the Lord Jesus and his spirit. That's good news. Amen. Let us pray. We thank you, Father, for these great miracles that heal, that give sight to the blind, ability to walk to those paralyzed, hearing for those who are deaf, changed thinking, so that we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for him who loved us and gave himself for us. We thank you, Father, for our respective callings, the minds we have, the, the ability with our hands or feet the skills, the various skills that compose even this congregation where we use those very gifts together to bring glory to you and honor to you and demonstrate to the world that we are whole people, that we are saved body and soul and our only comfort is to give ourselves willingly and cheerfully in your service because we belong to you. We will always belong to you. And so, Father, we thank you for the word that points to the power of your command, that it reaches even the little people, and how we need this perspective today in this world. Thank you, Lord, for your word, for Jesus' sake. Amen.